Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 117 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Aaron Gerstenzang about mentoring, going solo, and minimalism. Today's podcast is sponsored by Spotlight Branding, which wants you to know that having a new website designed for your law firm doesn't have to suck. Spotlight Branding prides itself on great communication, meeting deadlines, and getting results. Text the word website to 66866 in order to receive a free website appraisal worksheet. Today's podcast is sponsored by FreshBooks, which is ridiculously easy to use and packed with powerful features. Try it now at freshbooks.com slash lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. And today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists and its smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So before jumping into our conversation with Aaron, I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about Avo. Let's do it. Um, so I'm I, feeling feisty about ooh, this right I, now. <laughs> I can see you're a little fired up. Um, so I am paying to go to the their National Lawyernomics Conference in Las Vegas later this week. Um, I've never been before, and I'm excited to check it out. Kind of in anticipation of me going on that trip, I wrote a post on Lawyerist a couple of weeks ago uh, highlighting some threatening letters that lawyers had written to Avo over the years um, where they expressed disdain and frustration with Avo's business model and tactics. And I wrote it as kind of a humorous piece about the crazy things lawyers write when they send takedown notices. Um, And I would say lots of people thought it was fun and funny and a few people got really upset about us <laughs> defending this terrible avo which of course was kind of the whole point of the post which is we we actually don't think avo is terrible and horrible and evil we can appreciate that there's always room for improvements in business models and their business model is not traditional but we like them and see what their role is in the marketplace and so i know the handful of kind of nasty comments on that post got you really fired up <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, so there's a, a couple of pieces to this. Like, there, some of the comments are, you know, I'm appalled at the gleeful tone. Okay, we were gleeful. We were definitely making fun of examples of what we considered to be bad lawyering. Yeah, and look, I'm, I'm, I admit I'm really sensitive <laughs> to that. Like, I don't want to be in the business of making fun of people. It was meant to be a humorous post. I can appreciate that. Like, if my tone was too confrontational or something like that that wasn't what i was going for and so like i am sensitive to that no but i mean this is bad lawyering sending blustering letters full of empty threats i will sue you for defamation when it's clearly not defamation i mean this is bad lawyering and i will criticize that all day long we've criticized it in other posts that everybody loves i think that what's going on here is people have strong feelings about avo not necessarily about the bad lawyering that was on display here. So I just want to talk about some of that because there's a couple of different comments and tweets that we've seen on this. Um, some people just don't like Avo. They believe that Avo is profiting off of their um, their likeness or that they're not fair, that the algorithm is too opaque. Um, I get all that stuff. Some people uh, don't like Avo because they couldn't get their score up. But let's kind of take some of that stuff apart. So first of all, I think we need to recognize that finding a good lawyer 
is so much harder than we as lawyers appreciate because we all think I can refer people to a good lawyer. But like I can refer people to a good lawyer in a few distinct areas of practice where I have specific knowledge of how that lawyer performs in the courtroom or in the office. I, I can't actually make really competent referrals to more than a very small handful of lawyers. It's weird, right? You and I sit in the middle of the largest community of small firm lawyers in the world, yeah. where in theory we are, and we are, in touch every day with thousands of lawyers around the country. And yet, maybe at our business model failing, like, <laughs> I don't have a good system for knowing a person in every practice area in every jurisdiction. And so I'm regularly stumped when people ask me for referrals. And if I don't know, then how would a normal person know? And th and this happens at all levels. Like I, I've told a few people a story about my uncle, who is a successful dentist in a small Midwestern town uh, city. And, uh, and he got a bad referral, um, or at least he thinks he did, um, because somebody referred him to the, the, the lawyer in this practice area, and it, it went sour. And was it a bad referral? I don't know. Was the, the lawyer having a bad day? I don't know. But like... These are things that are hard to, really hard to come to. And it's even harder if you're not the kind of person who normally encounters lawyers in their day-to-day -day life. And my uncle is, and he's still got a bad referral. So like, it's really hard to do. And Avo is about the only company out there addressing this. Go ahead and bring up Martindale Hubble and Super Lawyers. But I mean, come on. Like those are, those are not the kinds of consumer ratings that are actually helpful when you're trying to find a DUI lawyer. So Avo's trying. It's an objective rating which means it's inherently flawed and it can be gamed sometimes. And we have um, anomalies like the goat lawyer or the fact that Eric Holder is a way worse lawyer than I am on, on Avo, which I think is hilarious. And, um, and I'll point some of those out because I think they're funny and I have, but it's, it's an objective rating and you can, you can either, and, and it's not going anywhere. It's not defamation. You don't have a right. You're a public figure. You don't have a right to keep your information secret. It's a reality. And I think lawyers need to start coming to an acceptance of that. Well, and those are, I think, again, kind of unpacking some of the issues. Those are two separate issues. Yeah. So one is Avo's right to do this is a separate question from the objectivity of their scoring. Oh, yeah. And their scoring, whether or not it is perfect, is objective. They are not picking and choosing who gets a score. And contrary to a bunch of the hateful <laughs> comments on the post and in the threatening letters that we were writing about, they aren't picking and choosing you based on how much money you give them. That isn't how their business works. Because if they right. did, it would fail. Yeah. And, and actually, so one of the uh, commenters objected that I have no idea how Avo constructs this rating. Well, you just need to do a little bit of research, actually, because Avo is quite forthcoming about what you need to do. Another lawyer was disappointed that he had made all these comments on uh, in Avo's forums and his, his rating hadn't gone up. Well, that's because that's the wrong thing to do. Everything on your profile that affects your rating is public. There's no secret information you don't get to see. Fill out your profile and you'll automatically get a small bump. Um, add industry recognition. So if you've gotten any awards from anyone, um, add those things to your profile. If you've published things, especially like a law review article or a treatise in your local bar journal, um, lawyerist guest profile. posts are yeah. worth a lot of AVO points. <laughs> I don't, I, they might be. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're. Maybe in order to salve us, they've they've done that in the back end. I have no idea. But I mean, the 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 deal is like you should be able if you are doing the sorts of things that make people recognize you as a good lawyer in general, which is being active in your local um, legal community, um, publishing, speaking, and you make sure that your AVO profile reflects those things. And then get a couple of your colleagues who actually know you to give uh, to to leave a, a recommendation on your profile. 
and get two or three clients to give you a five-star rating if you can. And we've got posts about how to ask and, and not be skeezy about it. But like, those are the kinds of things that will very quickly get you to a nine or a 10, um, which is why I normally say like, if somebody doesn't have an empty profile, if they've actually tried to claim their profile and they have a five or a six or a seven, then it probably does actually reflect some, some level of their quality as a lawyer. If you put a little bit of effort into it, you should be able to get yourself up to an eight or a nine or a 10. So I would push back just a little on that. Not a lot, because I actually mostly respect how exactly What's, what's your how, AVO score, by the way? A 10. Okay. I, in fact, we, you, you and I have <laughs> talked to some of the behind the scenes team at AVO, and they've indicated to us that the way the algorithm works is that it is not capped. Yeah. Um, and so that each of us actually has a score of like 14.2 or something yeah. like that. Like we could reduce I'm sure points I'm and I'm still, sure I'm a 20. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and I assume Josh King is like a 46. But yeah. <laughs> the, the one thing I would push back about is that most of the factors that go into their score are more about your engagement in the profession yeah. than they are about the quality of your legal work. And so if you can get clients and peers to give you high ratings for the quality of your legal work, that absolutely will give you a high score. Um, but kind of the objective measures they have about yeah. put stuff from your resume in here are far more about, are you teaching CLE? Are you writing law review articles? Are you getting super lawyer awards? Are you a committee chair of the Bar Association? Um, those are the kinds of things that are far more about industry engagement than they are about what you're doing in your office. But yeah, those are important things for good lawyers to do. And so like, I respect that AVO gives high scores to those things. And yeah. if you're not engaged in the Bar Association or CLE or writing or speaking or teaching, then like do that. Well, you, you, and if you think about it, if you, if you take AVO out of this equation, like if you are not involved in any of those things, is another lawyer in your community likely to know you well enough to refer somebody to you? Probably not. I mean, maybe, maybe you're just best friends, but, but probably nobody knows who you are. And so uh, I think AVO in a way is a, is an okay reflection of how lawyers actually judge and rate one another to make referrals. So um, is it perfect? No. Um, and I, I realize that lawyers hate to be rated, even though they love rating restaurants on Yelp, but it, it's a reality. And it turns out that AVO has kick-ass SEO and so one of the your cl potential clients are highly likely to find your AVO profile. And so it is worth your while, um, worth your while, not just AVO's while, to actually fill that in and take the effort to, to get your score up. So as I see it, there are three issues and then I want to close with something. So yeah. the three issues as I see them, one are AVO's score is objective, even if it isn't perfect. They, yep. It's not pay to play. Um, it's not based on whether you're friends with AVO. Anyone can work the system the same way as anyone else. Avo has the right to run this business. They aren't <laughs> stealing your data or publishing stuff against your will that or you have control you. over. They're not defaming you either. So stop fighting that fight. <laughs> yeah. And third, if you want to have constructive criticisms of Avo or have actual concerns about what they're doing, don't be a bad lawyer and write terrible, threatening, empty garbagey takedown letters like that is not good you can absolutely criticize what avo is doing you can criticize their business model but they're not defaming you and posting you know exuberant threats against about how you're going to sue them is is just not going to work just to kind of 
put a bow on this topic. <laughs> I, I just want to be really open about kind of disclosing our relationship with yeah. Avo, which is they are not a current lawyerist advertiser. They have in the past occasionally been an advertiser. They did sponsor and send Dan Lear to attend our second TBD law conference. Um, and I am going to their conference this week without any money exchanging hands. I am paying for airfare and hotel to go to their conference this week. Oh, you're to getting check a free ticket though, I imagine. They, they are comping me my conference admission, yes. There you go. Okay. So uh, all that disclosed, let's talk about something totally different. Um, uh, that was a conversation I felt like I wanted to have, and so Aaron was like, let me introduce it. For a but, segue, yeah. I have had a conversation with Aaron about Avo. There you go. And so let's talk to Aaron about not Avo, but about starting a solo practice, about mentoring, and about minimalism, uh, which wound up being really interesting. So here you go. Hi, my name is Aaron Gerstenzang, and I am a criminal defense attorney in Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And thanks for pronouncing your name because I find it difficult, even though it doesn't look all that scary. Y you are not alone in that, so anytime. <laughs> I got to hit that first T. <laughs> all right. Um, so uh, tell us, uh, so you're a criminal defense attorney. Tell us about your practice because I know it's not... Um, just a straight up normal criminal defense practice. So how, how and where do you practice and what's different about it? So I practice in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and my practice takes me to courts about an hour to an hour and a half outside of Atlanta, uh, including those within there. I have a focus, or traditionally I started out focusing only on DUI defense, um, and I did that primarily just DUI defense for about eight and a half years. I started expanding my practice when I went solo and opened up more to uh, all kinds of offenses that fall under the umbrella of drug and alcohol-related offenses, um, along with traffic offenses, and of course, DUI as well. So I'm, I'm curious. I, I did some criminal defense work at the very beginning of my practice, um, which I, I'm not trying to say like I know all about it, but I, know, I do know that starting out on DUI is a pretty common way. Is that because there's a lot of business there and there's plenty to go around, or um, what's the reason for starting with that? Yeah, uh, there is a lot of business there. It also happens to tend to be an area that is heavily litigated. So if you're drawn to being in the courtroom and wanting to take a lot of cases to trial, it's a perfect uh, practice area for that because it is something that tends to be politically, for political reasons and obviously public safety reasons, it tends to be an issue uh, that the court, uh, that the prosecutors want to prosecute aggressively. Oh, interesting. It also is a practice area that affects all people from all communities. Yeah. Um, so that tends to also be an area that lends itself to more litigation. So I, I know from being in court that criminal defense attorneys like live in court. And does that mean you spend a lot of your days there or are you in your office or how does that end up getting split up? It tends to be for mostly, mostly in Atlanta. Uh, we have court in the morning. There are some places that have court in the evenings, but that does mean that on many days you'll spend all of or half of your day in court. Um, so that can be interesting for juggling your office work whenever you finish up in court, which could be 10 a.m., noon, 3, or 6.30 sometimes. So I assume you get up, you head to the courthouse, and that sometime later in the day you might end up back at your office. Yeah, that is always the hope of almost every day. How do you, uh, so how do you juggle all that? How do you keep track of your cases and stuff? Are you like, are you paperless? What do you do? 
Ooh, I am paperless. I uh, actually went paperless a couple of years ago, and it ends up being it ends up being much more manageable, manageable, I think, than people normally suspect at the beginning. But I have a number of different systems in place. I use uh, Clio for client management software, which is amazing because that does let me get a lot of work done, regardless of where I am, whether you know on my phone or my computer. And that's probably key, as I carry my computer in my bag, no matter where I go. Um, and so having that sort of portability has been amazing from practice. Do you also carry a scanner with you or, or something? Because I know um, criminal dockets often have a lot of paperwork. You're generating pleading forms and all kinds of stuff. And I, um, how do you, criminal defense attorneys are often the first ones to be like, oh, why, why bother going paperless? Because, you know, the, the prosecutor hands me a manila folder of documents and then there's charge forms and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I would just be scanning all the time. And so how do you handle that? So there is a fair amount of uh, exchange of paperwork in court. I don't, I do have a scanner that I could probably use. I don't end up needing it. Um, I have a very low tech solution for the problem that you brought up, nice. which is <laughs> next, next to my laptop. I also have a clear plastic folder. Um, and that is part of my paperless system. And that's, I guess my inbox, if you will, of everything that hasn't yet been scanned. And so on my person, there are things that I always carry. My laptop's one of them. And then this plastic uh, folder is the other. So anytime anybody hands me any document that's going to have to make its way into my system, it's put in that plastic folder where I know it'll stay safe until it gets transferred to the cloud. And do you just dump things into your scanner once a day or once a week or something then? Yeah, uh, it depends on how many hours I'm in court that week, but <laughs> I'd like to do it on a daily basis. But um, normally it happens once every two to three days. Nice. So you also teach and speak, right? I do. It's one of my favorite things. <laughs> Tell, so what do you speak and teach about? Um, well, lately what I've been speaking about mostly is both ethics for attorneys and, um, you know, how they should be communicating online, whether that's advertising or social media or what have you, uh, but also talking about technology and how attorneys can be using technology to improve their practice and improve client service. So, okay. So, um, I was going to ask you about your minimalism, but I want to tease that right now and maybe skip <laughs> <laughs> ahead to what I want to talk about later, which is... Okay, so so when it comes to going solo, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that lawyers run into? And I know like you did this from experience, but now you, some of the some of the work that you do is along those lines too. So, um, so what what do people run into? What are the roadblocks, and how do people overcome them? Um, I think you know one of the significant challenges, or the significant challenge of being solo, and why probably a lot of people avoid it, is this idea that you have to be running a successful business, which is very much different than the practice of law. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's usually, I think, the barrier and the most daunting sort of uh, part of it, which is may keep some people from going going solo. But those who are brave enough to venture into it, I think that also continues to be a struggle that is a real challenge. Um, and figuring those out on your own without a good network or without good mentorship can be extremely challenging. Um, and not even knowing where to turn for that kind of mentorship. Um, and it can be anything that ranges from the small business questions to the bigger uh, questions, or even knowing what questions to ask. Uh, so I think that that's initially... And that goes hand in hand with, you know, every solo's fear, especially a new solo, which is where am I going to get my business? Right. And how am I going to get clients to call me? Uh, how am I going to keep the lights on? 
and what what are the best methods for doing that? And there's a lot of noise out there, and there's a lot of people trying to tell you, oh, here's how you do it. <laughs> here's the best way. Here's how you bring business in that you you know invest a lot of money online or um, you spend time networking or you hire a consultant. So there's a lot of voices out there, but sort of navigating those with limited resources can be, I think, really challenging. So I, and I didn't stop to ask you, but you went solo after practicing for a while at another firm, right? Was it a, a small Correct. firm or where you had support or were you basically, were you a partner and how did, what was it like the transition? Um, in my practice area, it was considered a larger firm, but we had about eight attorneys uh, and I had a lot of support staff. So we, um, in that, in that regard, it felt very big, uh, for a criminal defense firm. And so that, but that gave me great experience because I had a very hands-on approach in that firm and I was part of orchestrating the workflow and the scheduling for all these attorneys and, you know, management. So that gave me really great experience to jump in and handle what is a much smaller portfolio clients on my own. But you weren't, were you managing the firm there or were you just really focused on law practice? Uh, well, initially when I started, it was mainly the practice of law, right? When you're a new lawyer, that's usually the first, one of the first things that you need to focus on. Um, but my role there grew. Uh, and so I was acting as more of a manager and a practitioner towards the end. And how did you, I mean, Going from that to going solo often feels like a bigger step than it maybe looks like to those of us who've done it. But um, how did you decide you wanted to do it? And then what did you do to prepare and then make it happen? Uh, well, it, for me, it didn't seem like that there was a moment where I decided, I think I want to go solo. <laughs> I think I had always I think I'd always planned to be on that trajectory. I come from a family of uh, practitioners who have their own firms. So I think it was just a question of feeling ready for me. Um, and I, again, I credit just incredible mentorship along the journey. I had an incredible boss at the time who really encouraged me to, to start my own practice and helped me. And in fact, let me start my own practice out of his office while I was still working there, um, which is very unique. Uh, and, but was incredible in terms of giving me the foundation to launch my practice when I finally did cut all ties. One of the, you've mentioned mentoring a couple times now, and I, I agree that it's so important uh, recently, somebody said that um, they asked a room full of lawyers who was interested in mentoring, and all the older lawyers raised their hands. And um, then they asked who was looking for a mentor, and none of the younger lawyers did, which I thought was interesting because it's sort of backwards from how you think. You hear younger lawyers saying, oh, I want a mentor, but I can't find one. Um, and maybe it's maybe we need to be doing more work to persuade younger lawyers that they actually need to seek out a mentor. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Like, how should people go about it? And should they? And what is that? What should that relationship actually look like? Um, I, I, I think that's an interesting point. And I tend to agree that that's what's happening in our community that people don't, you know, and especially younger attorneys, it's not clear what that mentorship will provide to a younger attorney who's sort of looking forward at the great abyss and what is unknown. Um, and I think what's interesting about that example is all the older attorneys really you know, in hindsight, looking back can appreciate the value of what mentorship means in the practice of law. Mm -hmm. um, but, y you know, I, I think that there's a couple of different things that lawyers can find in the mentorship category. And that's um, not a mentor, but also a sponsor. 
And I think that there's an important distinction between those two. I think a mentor can be someone who doesn't necessarily have to be super senior to you. Um, it can be someone who maybe has been out in practice for a couple of years longer, or even somebody who maybe is going through a similar experience as you, uh, but you have that camaraderie, you have that network to sort of lean on each other and and have conversations about what what you should be doing or how you solve problems. Um, I, I, I don't know how to solve the problem of attorneys not necessarily reaching out and looking for mentors. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that that's one of the biggest issues right now for solo practitioners. There's so many opportunities for solos to go out on their own, even straight out of school. Um, and technology is part of that and just the world is changing, but we need to be careful to make sure that the practice of law is in many respects an apprenticeship where you learn from the people who have had experience and they teach you. And that's what these large law firms have provided. Um, but in this day and age where we have great opportunities for solos, we need to be able to compensate for lack of mentorship. Maybe part of it too is like the feeling among newer lawyers that um, if you if you go find an older experienced lawyer, yeah, sure, they might be able to tell you how to t- try a case, but that's not their that doesn't feel like their pressing need. What they really want to figure out is how to do online marketing or how to, <laughs> you know, what kind of technology should they, they be incorporating in their firm. And they feel like they're, they're not talking to the right person for that. And so maybe you need to seek out a couple of different um, types of mentors that can advise you on those different things. And, and maybe, cause you know, like I, I, I didn't think that getting business was actually the hard part, but when I was new, if you tried to tell me that um, I would keep, I wouldn't believe you. And so maybe part of it is like um, you need to find somebody that can talk to more where you are now um, as opposed to looking back and here's where you're going to end up. I don't know. Uh, yeah. And I think that this idea when when somebody talks about a mentor to me, I have this model of, oh, this is someone you meet with regularly and you have a list of questions that you have. Um, and I think that the practice of law often demands something a little bit more fluid where a mentor is really just someone you call in a, when you have a question or you have a crisis and it might be in these, you know, an email exchange or these five minute um, phone calls where you have an, a client who's upset and they're threatening a bar complaint or something. An older attorney who's seen this or gone through this experience can provide the wisdom or um, you know, just a different take and give you that I guess emotional intelligence is something that I think, or I'd like to think that more experienced lawyers have developed and can give you these um, solutions to problems that do come up and technology doesn't help you solve that. Uh, But you need somebody you trust that you can go to to give you good advice. So I want to continue our conversation, but first we need to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk more about some of the challenges and mistakes that you see lawyers make when they go solo. Um, And then I want to end by asking you about minimalism, both personally and how it maybe plays into your practice. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Spotlight Branding is an internet marketing company that doesn't suck. Most solo and small firm lawyers have had at least one truly miserable experience with a web designer or internet marketing company. So if the idea of launching a new website for your law firm makes you queasy, they get it. Spotlight Branding prides itself on excellent communication with its clients, being responsive, professional, respectful, and delivering what it tells you it's going to deliver. Spotlight Branding works exclusively with solo and small law firms. Services include law firm website design, email newsletter management, social media marketing, and more, all designed to make your law practice more profitable. 
And Spotlight Branding is currently offering a free gift to our listeners. Simply text the word website to 66866 and receive their free website appraisal worksheet, an easy way to evaluate your web presence, identify what's working, and spot opportunities to improve. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three client projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to Modern Life as a Small Firm Lawyer. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks, and get paid up to four days faster, see when your client has seen your invoice, and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBook is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Okay, and we're back. And Aaron, so we've talked about mentoring. Um, what are some of the other challenges that you think new lawyers need to overcome? Or um, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people making when they try to go solo? Yeah, I think one of I think one of the challenges and mistakes that I see a lot of solos and new solos making is this focus on sort of looking backwards and trying to design a practice based upon a practice have been successful 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. And this maybe goes hand in hand with what you're saying about the problem with mentorship. Because while I do think that experienced lawyers have so much advice to give, I think that the world facing new lawyers um, and what their practices are going to look like are quite different than what those more experienced lawyers, uh, what trajectory their career has taken. And, and I think following the models of those firms where I see my colleagues going out and setting up law firms that look very much like law firms from 15 years ago, and it, it is a struggle, and as opposed to looking forward and looking for new opportunities in the shifting landscape. So I, I literally just had coffee with a 2L um, who is starting to think about what to do when he graduates, um, and, I, and I was trying to say something uh, like that, you know, like you really need to go learn how to practice law and you should probably do that from somebody who's been practicing for a long time, but don't necessarily learn all your lessons about running a law practice from them. And I was, I was kind of struggling with how to, you know, how to really say, here's what to do rather than just like try to ignore the bad things that you might, 
the bad habits you might be picking up. So I, how do you talk about it? It sounds like you've got more experience doing it and maybe I should <laughs> get my script from you. <laughs> well, I, I, one thing that I have noticed, and I think that it's so critical, there is this focus on when you're leaving law school, just get a job, mm-hmm. you know, just get a job wherever you can get a job. And the problem with that, that we often don't pay attention to is how impressionable we are when we've never practiced law and we're being in- introduced to this brand new world. And the person who is our chaperone for that brand new world can have this amazing and incredible influence on you. Um, and I, I thought of it recently because I was putting together together a motion packet and I had this habit of um, like leaving the signature line on a second page. And it's just something that I had adopted from my old firm um, that now I'm changing, but I laughed at myself that this was just a habit that I had internalized and I hadn't really thought much about. Um, and it, it, it can be scary because I do see newer lawyers come out of law school and take jobs and work in offices where I know that they're not getting good training and whether that's, and a lot, oftentimes it has to do with using emotional intelligence. How do you deal with this conflict resolution between two people? Um, and in even ethical uh, guidance and you will internalize these lessons. It's not as intentional as you think. It's not as easy to parse the good from the bad. Um, and that can really end up ruining careers if you start on point. So I would, to the extent it's financially feasible, encourage people to be very careful about that first job because really what you are looking for is valuable mentorship. Mm-hmm. And you want to make sure that you're getting that value as opposed to picking up habits that are going to be very difficult to unlearn because you don't even realize that you've adopted them or learned them. Well, and I, I guess I usually think of it in terms of to kind of question everything you're told. Although that's really hard to do when you're also supposed to be learning pieces of it. But, you know, like, and it's also, you know, I think I'm probably a terrible employee because I do that. But, <laughs> but um, you know, like when from everything from when somebody hands you a template and says, here's our form for um, articles of organization for an LLC, you know, my tendency is to look at that and go, well, why are you using all this archaic language? Like, I couldn't understand what's on here. So I'm going to rewrite it. That's a little hard to do when you're new, I think. And um, but it's also kind of, it helps. Like, why is our retainer 15 pages long and nobody can understand it? Why um, why am I calling up opposing counsel and approaching settlement negotiations in this way? Um, or why why am I starting from scratch on this document for the 15th time? Um, all, all of those things are things that you should question. And it's really hard to do as a new lawyer. So um, I get I totally get what you're saying. I just don't, I'm not really sure how I um, exhort new lawyers to like go out and do things your own way. Sure. Well, I, but that's a really good point. I think that's exactly what you need from a mentor is there should be a good reason that's why we use this language. Mm-hmm. And if nobody knows what the answer is, well, then there probably is a better way to be doing it. Um, but those are the things, those are the questions that you don't learn in law school. Why do we call first or why do we wait for them to call us? You know, should I, why are we doing our negotiations in this way? have those conversations because that's the value of mentorship because it gives you the tools you need to decide, Hey, this is a great practice or I can improve on this practice. I like that. So question everything, but do it um, with somebody who you can trust to, to actually give you the answers and give you the space to do it. Whether it's, I guess, whether it's your boss or whether it's a, a, a separate mentor, right? Absolutely. And if you can't get those answers, then that's maybe that's how you know that you want to continue looking for the right mentor. 
it's a it's sort of like lawyers are generally the kinds of people for whom um, because I'm your dad, that's why is never an acceptable response. <laughs> but then when <once laughs> that, that should be the case. But then but but then we get into a firm and it's like use this template. Well, why why should I use it this way? Because I'm your boss. That's why. <laughs> that's right. That, that's right. And that and that can be a problem. You can't always stop in the middle. Um, but you can follow up with people too. Yeah. And so that was sort of like I think I did that when I was starting out. I just had a list, and we would drive around in the car a lot, going from court to court, and say, "What you said." this? Why do you do it that way? Or, um, and luckily I had a mentor who was willing to have those sort of fun conversations, um, and walk me through those details. How about ethical pitfalls? Like what are the stumbling blocks for new lawyers on ethics that, um, that you think they need to really have a heads up for? Sure. I think that this is a problem in the legal community across the board is, um, and it's really a human problem where we tend to, instead of going and finding the answers about what's appropriate or what's not, we tend to look to our peers for the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so especially when it comes to solos who are trying to market themselves online and, you know, they get feedback from all kinds of people about being on social media how to advertise and what to say. And for the most part, uh, lawyers are not being careful about making those uh, well thought out or researched decisions. And instead, they're going online and saying, well, so-and-so is talking about this on Facebook, so this much must be okay. Um, and so I, I think that there's there's a real problem right now because there's a disconnect. When I do get the opportunity to talk to lawyers all over the country, for the most part, criminal defense attorneys, but, and we start talking about these rules like rule 1.6 governing client confidentiality. You know, it's a huge unlock for a lot of attorneys when we start talking about what that means as it's compared to the attorney client privilege rules, because those are two very different things. Um, but those aren't, those aren't rules that attorneys are really even cognizant of. And when we start talking about it, the rule governing confidentiality, you know, you're really not allowed to talk about anything related to your case with anyone, whether they're an attorney or not. And yet you see on a day-to-day basis, um, attorneys will always tell me, well, I can tell you about this because it's all public record. And that is actually a made-up exception to <laughs> right. Rule 1.6. There is no such exception. And it doesn't matter if everybody in the country is talking about this case and they've read all the details you know, in the papers. You as the attorney, you have the duty of confidentiality. It cannot come from you. And that's really shocking to attorneys. And it shouldn't be since we've all sort of agreed to be governed by these rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the, there's a big disconnect between these rules that have always existed or have existed for many, many years. Um, and just, and the, the fact of the matter is, is attorneys were ignoring this <laughs> rule and attorneys were regularly sharing and to this day are regularly sharing information about their cases if it's okay because the, the attorney or it's part of the public record or just not thinking about it at all. Um, and it's only now that we see these communications moving online that lawyers are getting in real trouble for this kind of conduct and, you know, careers are getting ruined over it, whereas they're really not doing anything that's different than what we do peer to peer in person. Um, and we're not even aware that we're violating these rules. So I think the online conduct is really problematic and it manifests all kinds of different ways, you know, snarky comments on your private Facebook page or clever advertising where you're talking, where you're disclosing too many facts about your case. 
online. Um, it's There's all kinds of pitfalls for attorneys. And for the most part, all of us are out there and we have very little idea of where those pitfalls are or how to avoid them. Okay. So that's really interesting that you talk about it in that way, because I've always thought of it as, um, Hey lawyers, social media is exactly the same as any other communication. Stop being so scared of it. Just use it the same way you would, um, talking to people normally. And you're saying that is exactly the problem is that lawyers have been sloppy about keeping confidences for ever. And now they're just being sloppy about it in a much more public, much more harmful forum. Yes. Yeah. And I, I'd prefer the, the phrase thoughtless, maybe. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and that's, again, that comes back to the problem of looking to our peers. And that's what humans do. I mean, that's what children do. That's what adults do. We, we gauge uh, the appropriateness of our conduct based upon how other people around us are behaving. And you think, well, that attorney has a great reputation. Look what they're doing online. Surely they've researched it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just going to mimic it. And so that is, you know, when lawyers are engaging in the same kind of conduct they've been engaging in for years, it's a, it can be um, a huge problem when it comes online. We had a, a local debate over um, listserv communications and a private listserv, you know, with a small group of attorneys. And we were debating about whether or not it was appropriate to be posting favorable court orders with the client's name and case number on it among, and distributing that amongst attorneys so that they could use them in future arguments. And it's a really valuable tool to have available um, but it's a clear and blatant violation of Rule 1.6 to start to be, you know, disseminating these facts with your client's name and case number on it. Unless, of course, you get your client's permission, which cures just about everything. Sure. So you can, but I, I'll tell you that that's very rare that attorneys are doing that or even right. thinking of that step. It's not difficult to get in many cases. Um, I think many of my clients would be fine with that. But uh, hey, can I share this with my colleagues? Oh, sure. Right. Um, but it's just a step that aren't even, we're not even aware that we're breaking the rule. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, the biggest problem. Uh, one of the lawyers I worked with, uh, worked for, uh, had a sort of a blanket uh, uh, communication waiver kind of a thing. And I think it was, it was based around media that, you know, like, I can, I can use your case to, uh, I can talk to reporters about your case if they ask and stuff like that. Do you think that's effective to just put it all in the retainer agreement? I think it's a good place to start, um, but most of the requirements require that the disclosure, that the waiver be knowing and voluntary. Mm -hmm. And I think a blanket statement in the beginning, I just talk to whomever I decide when it's appropriate. I think it's hard to say that that waiver is knowing. Yeah. Um, and Especially so, if you have a 15 page retainer agreement. <laughs> correct. I mean, and the, and the fact of the matter is they're often not reading all of it anyway, even if you have a page and a half retainer agreement. Um, mm -hmm. And what that really means and what the implications of that may be are yet to be foreseen. So um, I do think it's a good and responsible place to start to have that um, in the retainer agreement to start that conversation with your client. But I, I, I think it would be prudent to go back and revisit that before you actually share it. It really all kind of brings it back to what you've been saying the whole time, which is like, be careful about who you learn from, whether it's a mentor or, or your boss or whatever, because you're going to, um, whether it's the way they treat potentially cl confidential client information or everything else they do, um, you really can't question everything and you're going to pick up habits and you're going to believe things about um, about how law should be practiced. You're going to pick up writing conventions and, and argument conventions and things like that that you're, you may not think to question for years. So it really is important to, to have a mentor, but to be 
be careful who you choose and who careful who you choose to work for. Yeah. Um, and be open to, to being convinced. <laughs> um, that may have been how everybody has done it and how you've always done it, but be, you know, hold strong opinions, right? Like be, be open to taking good advice and changing the way that you do things. I love that you said that. That's one of my favorite um, quotes is yeah, strong, oh yeah, strong I, opinions, weakly held. <laughs> it is, that, is not, that is not my quote. I do not claim credit for it. No, but, but I love I, it. <laughs> I do love it. Okay, so I want to do a complete uh, switch of gears here and I want you to tell us about minimalism because this is one of those things that like, you know, tiny houses and minimalist behavior and I'm going to sell all my possessions. I am intuitively drawn to all of these things and it is my understanding that you are practicing minimalist. And so I want you to tell us about that and maybe how it even plays into law practice. Uh, yeah, I would love to. I, I would like to qualify that as an aspiring minimalist okay. because I, I see minimalism <laughs> as a journey. Mm -hmm. um, but I, m much like many of the people who have already heard of minimalism, uh, came across uh, the documentary on Netflix. And I want to say that was probably a, a, a handful of months ago. Um, and it's an amazing documentary for a place to start. But really, it talks about being more intentional about the things that you have in your life and deciding, is this contributing and helping? Um, or is it really just creating unnecessary um, and I, I should back up and say I started this process about a year and a half ago with um, Marie Kondo's book, which is The Life-Changing Art of Tidying Up. Mm -hmm. And that is probably an even better place to start because it's not quite as drastic uh, or advanced, I'll say, as minimalism. Um, but it's really the process of being very intentional about the things that are in your life and going through them one by one and deciding if you want to keep them. Uh and it's amazing when you start doing this process, you realize how much we are all pack rats and yeah. we hold on to things, not really clear ideas to why other this might come in handy someday. Um, and what we don't, what, what's sort of invisible to us when we invite all of these things into our lives is, you know, really you are taking on this responsibility of possessing it and it's taking up space and it, it takes up energy in a way that you're not even aware of until you get rid of it. And I think I um, compared this to sort of that great moment when you walk into a hotel room or if you've rented a house and it's all clean and there's nothing in there and it feels like such a great space to be in because it hasn't yet been filled with stuff. Um, and so it's really a way of purposefully um, keeping all the things in your life that you really need and really enjoy and help you live a better life all those things that don't help. And once you do it, the experience of getting rid of those things and living without those things is empowering. I feel like I'm a, I'm like a wannabe minimalist at heart. I, but it, it, it starts like in the things, in the spheres where I have a lot of control, I am extremely minimalist. Like my, my computer where I get to control everything is like really just boiled down to the essentials. There's no extra crap on my computer. My desk uh, at the moment is a little cluttered for me, but I think most people would walk into my office and be like, "There's where is your work? Um, and But then when I get back to my house, which has two little girls in it and my wife, and um, it's there's plenty of stuff there. And I, you're a mom too. Like how do you, um, not too, like I'm not a mom, but you're a parent <laughs> too. <laughs> um, like how do you, Correct. how do you do that with all of this, the, 
the stuff that comes along with having a child? How do you keep it to a minimum there? Um, well, you know, she, she's reluctantly, I have a six and a half year old daughter. Um, <laughs> and my husband was, he, my husband was on board and that, that's the first thing is you have to have this, um, who's willing to experiment with it. Uh, and you know, it, it is hard, but it's, 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 I think it's, it's hard for a six and a half year old to understand why, you know, we're moving all of this stuff around and I like the old house better. Um, but it, it, it's amazing how much it forces you to really think about the experiences that you're inviting into your household and the things that are coming into your house. And it makes living in your house so much better because you can, you can find the things that you want when you're looking for them. You, um, you really get to see the things that you love the most because when you, what you keep is the things that really give you joy. Um, and so I would say that although convincing a six and a half year old that this really makes sense was, is a little bit tricky in a daily struggle sometimes. Um, it, our experiences as a family have been so much better because it makes that family time so much more valuable. We can go and look at our game closet and easily pick out the game we want and not, um, be distracted by a million different options or trying to find things. So it, it is the family part is more difficult. And I will note that the minimalism documentary, they didn't really have any families um, when they were <laughs> making a movie. So that did cross my mind a bunch because there is a lot of stuff that as a parent, you have to throw out a ton of artwork and it's, it's hard to do and you need to do it in secret because <laughs> they yeah. will know if they find it. Um, you know, their precious, whatever project they've been working on that week. Uh, but it, again, it lets you keep the ones that are amazing and that are fun to put through, um, but eliminate the clutter. Well, and I should stop for a minute to head off the judgy people. Like, I know you, that, that you are not a cruel person. <laughs> and so like, I know that you're not forcing <laughs> your not. child to live in a stark room with three toys and like, <laughs> no, oh goodness. No, um, no, no, we don't. And she has, her room is the least minimalist of all the rooms in the house. And so, uh, she, she has plenty of stuff in there, but we will go through them and I, and we'll go through it as an exercise together. And which toys do you love and which toys do you think we could give to another family? Um, and, gotten pretty good at that uh you know and it's nice when you talk about that you don't just throw these things away that you are giving them to somebody who could use them and I think she's really bought into that part of it um where you're helping other kids who maybe don't have those same resources well and you know like my kids are I buy them something new and then they don't touch it for weeks because they have so much other stuff to play with and they only really play with three or four things at a time so it's not like they need all that other stuff, but <laughs> so true. It is so true. So does this does this spill over into law practice at all? I, um, is that somewhere that you you felt like you had to exercise your minimalism, or were you already pretty um, controlled and minimal in that environment too? Um, well, I, as I said, I think it's a journey. So I think it's really about being intentional about the things that you try to bring in. So um, it has helped me in my law practice. I think when I first went solo, I thought I needed a system for every single possible function um, that my office would have would be confronted with. Uh, and as it turns out, a solo doesn't need as many solutions as a much larger small firm. So uh, being able to go through and it, it, and this is really I, I say minimalism seems like a practice because because you just get good at sorting through what what you no longer need and what's unnecessary. Um, so paperless is a big is a big part of that because it does let you organize um, and get rid of a lot of the unnecessary 
you know, documents that you mean to read, cases that you printed out and you don't want to throw away because you're going to get around to reading. Um, so in that regard, just practicing minimalism helps you keep the clutter out of your practice. I like the idea of minimalism as it pertains to deciding which clients to keep and being intentional about which clients you have and keep. And you, you were at the, at the second TBD law um, meeting and uh, one of the, one of the people who was there, one of the lawyers who was there uh, heard uh, us talk about firing a client. And I think it was uh, Matt Homan who had said that every year he gave his secretary uh, permission to fire a client. And it was she, cause she knows who the most troublesome clients are from a totally different perspective than the lawyers. And A, it was, you know, cool um, uh, for morale, but also it wound up getting some really bad clients out the door. And so I, um, this, this other lawyer went home and felt empowered to fire her worst client and just felt great about it. And I, I kind of like the idea of minimalism as an approach to managing your clients. Oh, uh, and I think even without minimalism, that is probably <laughs> what it's, it, it's such a difficult decision to make in the moment, which is why good mentorship is essential. Because mm -hmm. sometimes a good mentor can say, this client is not worth keeping. It takes a lot of confidence to do that, or at least, you know, just crossing your eyes and, you know, plugging your nose and holding your breath and going, I'm just going to jump. <laughs> it, it can, but it's, am it's amazing when you do it. I can tell you the few clients that I've had to end our relationship. Um, if you, if you are get good at recognizing those signs early on, then you can, you can end that relationship in a very friendly way. Um, I saw someone in court this morning ending the relationship in a very public way and the judge was involved and it, oh. it seemed incredibly awkward and I could tell that it was terrible. Um, whereas if you can, and it's not hard to identify, the clients where you're just not having, you're not going to have a good working relationship with the clients whose calls you might dread or, you, you know, you can tell that they're not excited to talk to you. Um, and if you can just intervene in those moments before it gets disastrous and say, look, I don't think this is really, this may not be a great fit. Mm -hmm. And I think you might be looking for an attorney who does X, Y, and Z. I mean, there have been situations where I help that client find a new attorney and I, I know all these attorneys that are personality fit. And it, it is the most amazing thing you can do as a solo. It's so empowering because and it, when you give them the refund, it'll be the best money you ever spent um, because you can leave that relationship friendly way. You don't have to have that cloud of negativity following you around every time you think of it. Um, and it works out great for the client and it works out great for you. I suppose I, I, I risk starting a whole new podcast here but episode, but... Um the value of any decision-making framework, which is basically what minimalism or, or anything else is, is that it becomes easier to make decisions. You, you have a philosophy that you bring to your client relationships, your business model, your, um, your family life. And, uh, if you go, you know, if you, if you have a, a way to judge the value of a client and, Nope, this is this is basically just bringing me down. This is garbage that I don't need in my practice. This is extra baggage. Um, then it becomes an obvious decision what you have to do, and then you just have to decide how you're going to end that relationship. You don't have to decide whether or not to do it, and it just becomes easier to make that decision. So I, I suppose whatever framework you bring to it is is a helpful one. So 
yeah, I, I would agree. I hadn't thought of that, but I would definitely agree with that. It, it helps you see what's valuable to keep in your life and where, where you need to be focusing your efforts because a bad client can pull you away from your good clients and it can make you, can introduce frustration, um, and the kind of stress that really isn't helpful to your practice. It doesn't help you serve your other clients better. And it is definitely not helpful for your family life. So there's a, uh, a lot of business books that talk about like the velocity of decision making because um, on, on the idea that it's less important what decision you make than it is that you've made a decision. Um, and so if you can get the, should I do something about this over with? Um, and then you decide, well, am I going to donate this to Goodwill or am I going to refer this client to somebody else or am I just going to drop them and, and say good luck? Um, the fact that you've made the decision is a lot harder. Making the decision is harder than deciding what to do as a result of it. And so, um, so maybe if any framework that you give to yourself is right. that to do it faster. And if you're even wondering if you should hire a client, then the answer is probably yes. And probably <laughs> what you're struggling with is you don't want to. Yeah. Um, but you've sort of already made the decision about what the right thing to do is. Um, but again, having a good mentor, whether they're your colleague or what have you, talk to somebody those kinds of issues because that even just the talking it out um, is what gets you to the right answer. Uh not necessarily having an experienced, you know, sponsor or mentor to show you the ropes, but even just having somebody who's willing to have that conversation with you and listen to you as you figure it out. I think you've uh, brought us back to the beginning and tidied it up nicely. So I think that's a good place to end. So Aaron, thank you so much for being with us. Awesome. Thank you. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and The Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice.